we discussed opening with some Bernie Cope. Yeah. Given that we're recording <laughs> on the evening of his exit from the uh, 2020 Democratic uh, presidential primary. So mm. I thought it would be perhaps uh, not unrelated to the subject of the episode, which is sanctions, right? Because Bernie is, is one of two people who voted against the most recent rounds of uh, economic sanctions against Iran. Uh, a 98-2 vote in 2017. Uh, him and Rand Paul, uh, the only two who felt that maybe additional sanctions were not such a great idea. So effectively the only person, because we're not going to credit Rand Paul. <laughs> exactly. I don't, I don't know if he counts as a person. I want to find Rand Paul's neighbor for not permanently disabling him. <laughs> well, <laughs> He should have... He should have... <laughs> he should have fucking par- he should have paralyzed him. <laughs> I might have to cut that. Look, I'm not in a fucking good mood, okay? Bernie dropped out. I'm not feeling too good about it. <laughs> the kind of shit that we're going to talk about in this episode is so fucking dark. And the one guy in Congress that I can respect and who voted against it is, you know, just got torn up. Yeah. You're talking about Rand Paul, right? Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Uh, I mean, ninety-eight two though. I mean, that's uh, if the, if anything was an American consensus, uh, our uh, our Iran sanctions program uh, certainly would count uh, as right up there on things that we all agree are good. Yeah, resounding mm-hmm. bipartisan political endorsement. Yeah, congratulations. And, and, and like, I'm not even sure it doesn't reflect like the feelings of the country either. Like. We suck (laughs) as a a people. And Exhibit A, uh, your boy Bernie Sanders uh, uh, is gone. So the one politician that we count uh, with any kind of backbone uh, on anything uh, has been unceremoniously flushed out of the race. So I would pour one out. For for Bernie, (laughs) but I have a small and dwindling stockpile uh, of alcohol here in my (laughs) my COVID bunker. I will not be pouring out a single drop of my three week old wine. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to be pouring it uh, into my face uh, and crying. Yes. Uh, So R.I.P. Bernie. Um, Although I will say. I've said this before, and I've felt this for a long time. Um, The embracing of Bernie uh, and electoralism generally by uh, the harder left than yours truly Mm -hmm. uh, only meant that at some point they would be upset uh, by uh, by him. So better him taking all your donation money uh, and dropping out before Wisconsin than uh, him getting elected and, uh, you know, personally drone striking an an (laughs) Afghani wedding. Yes. I don't know, man. I mean, but since the drone striking, uh, I could get with any fucking presidential candidate. I think I would have. I think I would have preferred a guy who would have tried to. I don't know. Lower drug prices. Where do we think his effect would have actually landed? I don't know. That's the great compromise of American politics. <laughs> Again, uh, Mr. Sanders, uh, you inspired many uh, young people. You certainly inspired me to. Uh, or or tricked me uh, into believing <laughs> <laughs> that better things might be possible, and here we are. Uh. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to drag out the intro to this episode, but posi- political positioning on the left is just a long string of L's. That's that's what you get. Yeah. <laughs>
That's all we get. So back to our thesis statement. Uh, join FedSock and don't look back. <laughs> because this is what you get uh, on this side of the V. <laughs> You're listening to A-Lab. My name is Tarek, and Andy, Michael, and I, inspired by both COVID-19 and certain remarks by international law expert Professor Harold Koh, uh, musing upon what is and is not warfare when it's not a missile, have revisited U.S. economic sanctions policy. Now, the point here is not that Professor Koh is a hypocrite, although he is, but rather that he is a willing cog in an increasingly evil machine and in which all of us who are Americans are in some way complicit. We hope you enjoy it. In episode 7, if you listen to episode 7 of this podcast, we talked about sanctions. And we set the table and explain the legal background and the mechanics of how economic sanctions work. And I'm aware that that was not that long ago. But (laughs) I began to think uh, last week that this is actually the perfect time to discuss sanctions again. And not only because of what we'll discuss at the end of the episode where we talk about how sanctions are actually working in the world right now. But also because for you, the listener, and what we, what we know from our metrics is that most of you are in Western countries, the economy that you are experiencing right now under you know the coronavirus global lockdowns going on, that is the economy, it's a tiny taste of what the economy of a country under massive economic sanctions looks like. The, the speedy and brutal reduction of the economic outlook, yeah. empty shelves, the, the, the massive widespread job losses, uh, even down to medical facilities scrounging around for supplies and panicking and not knowing how they're going to treat people, the death rates rising for every possible cause, everybody you know out of work, and the whole, everybody you know in mounting anxiety about where their next meal is going to come from, their next job is going to come from. Uh, that... That taste that you're getting now is going to situate you emotionally in the world of somebody who's living in a country that's being cut off from the entire globalized world economy right. by the United States. Right. And, and these the, these conditions aren't like an unfortunate side effect of sanctions. They're, they, they are the purpose. Right. They're the operating model. Right. right. Like sanctions that don't impose these conditions are ineffective. <laughs> they ain't working. Right, so before, if you were a decent person with empathy, you could probably empathize with the impact of economic sanctions and say these are bad and you can repeat the words and say that this, uh, you know, this is uh, disenfranchising the, you know, the, the least powerful people in these countries. But now you have been doing research every single day, experiential research into what the fuck this actually feels like. <laughs> yes. You're in a position to get it now more than you ever have been in your life. Well, on the timeliness of this episode, I thought that when we did the sanctions episode was the right time, uh, episode seven, uh, because we had finally reached the point of absurdity, right? right. With the Iranian program, with the Venezuela tier <laughs> on, the, on the brink of a, of a full embargo. But we actually managed to make it at least 30% stupider. Oh, yeah. Yep. 
but with with the calls that maybe now is not the right time uh, to be crippling global uh, medical and humanitarian infrastructure to hard hit areas of the world. But uh, we're doing we're doing even better. Yeah. Uh, we're doing even. So more. we're going to show you how much dumber this can get, even than the last time we talked about this in just a few weeks. Because you're in a position to empathize with the actual impacts of what a haircut from the GDP of 10% right off the top of your entire economy, you'll be able to understand where we want to go next, which is that if someone were intentionally imposing, not just like a natural force, like a plague, roaming the earth and just you know hitting us out of nowhere where nobody saw it coming and it's just sort of an unfortunate act of God you have to deal with, but someone intentionally doing this to you, you can understand that Imposing these kind of conditions, the kind of anxiety that you've been feeling for weeks and everyone you know has been feeling for weeks, that's tantamount to an act of war. Right. Trump is, in fact, positioning himself as a wartime president now. Right. right. This is his 9-11. He's fighting a war against the virus. They're expressly using militarized terms uh, with respect to the, the virus. One would think that the point is pretty much well made there. Right. Yeah. And. The officials who impose economic sanctions, the people at OFAC, the people in... Uh, uh, this is a bipartisan position. Every at Both parties are well in favor of sanctions. As, as, 98 right, to 98 two. to 2. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And the academics who run cover for them, they all know this about sanctions. They, we, we, might, we might find the impacts to be only academic, but they know this. The effects that you're experiencing, the scarcity, the anxiety, that's the point. And these people also know, and they admit, if you catch them, that imposing these kinds of conditions on entire nations are is tantamount to war and we're going to prove it to you using facts and logic facts and logic yeah by your logic <laughs> sir we we know this because of how they talk about other actions other actions that have the potential to impose similar kinds of scarcity conditions similar kinds of anxiety or damage or, or, or destitution or death when they talk about those actions and what we're talking about in this particular episode is is cyber warfare when they talk about cyber warfare uh, it's a completely different kind of dialogue that you get. When it's sanctions, these people are all like, oh, this is a gentle nudge, a compassionate non-military option that is targeted to specific actors that, you know, we're really going to use to fix human rights abuse. And when it's cyber warfare, all of a sudden, like, this is, I mean, look, it's basically a nuclear weapon. It's just, you know, if you look <laughs> right. at it from, this is essentially, we, there's no reason to treat this any differently than a missile. You could disable our whole grid. And that's, that may be, that's maybe worse than a nuke. That's the whole country. Right. <laughs> but sanctions no, no not, no, at, not all. at all that's just yeah. that's just incentivizing good behavior from bad yeah, actors right. soft power yeah. right and we're going to talk mm -hmm. about the places that they do make that distinction where they where they conveniently stop making that distinction and why they might be making that distinction we're going to cover all of right. that yeah so during the Obama administration, Harold Coe, he's a famous international law professor, if you don't know who he is, he gave some remarks. Uh, he gave these remarks at a U.S. Cyber Command interagency legal conference, um, and he was answering these questions about what's the status of cyber attacks under international law. Harold Coe, friend of Joe Biden, our uh, Democratic nominee, right? Uh, Obama alum, prominent one. So you know he's good. Oh, yeah. yeah so yeah. He, he was the head of the Office of the Legal Advisor, for the State Department under Obama. Now that, in the administration, is the top international law authority for the federal government, as evidenced by the fact that he's got this centralized legal keynote speech uh, and remarks to give at the Cyber Command Legal Conference. This conference, I want to talk about it for a second, it's just, it's a, it's a kind of conference that where you would host 
uh, people from general counsel's office and, and other and other people from various stakeholder agencies like the intel community, from the military communities, from the national security communities, uh, as well as the Department of Justice. And the, and the idea is that you are addressing questions that they have about the status of cyber warfare, and also you kind of understand that they are leaning in one particular direction. So he's... This, right. this legal conference sounds uh, lit. Oh, yeah. It's, it's super <laughs> cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm wondering, uh, do you get ethics credits uh, for attending? Uh, for CLE? <laughs> I'm guessing no. You should get fucking negative ethics credits. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so before we jump in, I do want to talk about Co a little bit. I, I have a personal dream of one day making this guy a friend of the pod and, you know, go, going yeah. going deeply into a number of things that this guy does. This is, uh, we, we did talk about him. Did we touch on him in the OLC episode? I think so. His construction of the War Powers Act and that whole fucking Libya debacle is absolutely incredible. Two prominent positions makes him an official friend of the pod. I okay. Think, I think we can say that. Okay. Well, we're going to be bringing him back. At least I, I am going to make sure of that. So, but, yeah. so as an aside for the Academy, Harold Coe is one of these guys. It's like dozens of legal academics fit this category. Uh, who have yes. just had like their pet theories taken out and shot by the Trump <laughs> yes. admin? It's so funny watching these fucking it's guys. So good, it's like so good. So so Harold Co wrote this giant Cope article in 2017 after Trump won, uh, and like he really bought in. It's not it's not just like a, a blog post in Lawfare or something. He wrote like a full article, and and his theory is that. Listen, the president, he's saying he's going to walk away from the Paris Accords, but he can't do that unilaterally, okay? <laughs> no, no, sir. No, no, no. Any, sir, you cannot. Any treaty yes. that was entered into with a certain level of legislative process, buddy, it's going to take the same amount of legislative process to get back out of it. And that's <laughs> fucking nonsense, as it turns out, because yeah. he just walked. He, he walked, guessed. and that was it. There was, like, very little comment, and, like, that's it. It's over. The uh, When we were talking about this, the one that, like, popped out for me was um, – Adam Cox, who was uh, this like immigration and con law expert at NYU, he has these two great articles um, on like you know this website, Just Security, and, and the first one is like it, the title is "Why the Muslim Ban is Likely to Be Held Unconstitutional: The Myth <laughs> of Unrestrained Immigration Power." The myth, and then the next one is like the unprecedented you know, <laughs> Trump <laughs> decision and how the Supreme Court has upended immigration law. And it's like, buddy, um, his, his whole argument was just so... Who could have seen this coming? Yeah, his theory was that, like, sure, immigration law has a history of, like, atrocities, but those atrocities would have been normal in a non-immigration law at the time as well. So we shouldn't take that as an indication that immigration law is any more comfortable with atrocious executive behavior. Oh, yeah, for sure, man. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he's like, so, you know, this is way out of step and, and the Supreme Court will definitely hold it unconstitutional. 100%, and, yeah. bro. This is yeah, just the fucking most it. dupable liberal shit. <laughs> 
So, so these yeah. two guys that we're picking on right now—they're not the only ones. Uh, yeah, uh, tons of. No, there's a there's a there's a, a huge stable of these rubes, yes. um, scattered throughout all of the. Yeah, elite. and and professors are like they need their doctrine and their and their discussions about institutions to matter because otherwise, like, what are you even teaching these kids uh, if if everything is just politics and it's really just might makes right? But sorry, guys, that is actually what it you know. <laughs> that's what yeah, you should you up. should be teaching them yes. that yes <laughs> you're, you're teaching rhetoric that's that's what that's you right. teach that's how right. to how to compose arguments right okay so to take us out of the aside to pull pull back to the the topic here now these remarks that we're going to talk about these are not controversial this is exactly what the natsag the military intel communities this is exactly what they wanted to hear conservatives it's consensus absolutely. stuff absolutely conservatives yeah. and liberals are all on board with this analysis nobody nobody questions this analysis i don't i don't even think we're necessarily going to question this some of this analysis and this will become important later um <laughs> yeah. so the context here are that his remarks are in conversation with the un charter and the un charter is probably the most recognizable source of international law if you're not a lawyer i'm sure you've probably also heard of the un charter and it's certainly the one that's most on point for analyzing the legal status of of cyber attacks the un charter uh, gives a monopoly on violence to the un except under like very particular conditions which is basically emergency self-defense right and and it does this in in this one section article 2 section 4 which forbids member countries from threatening or using force against other nations and then there's a limited exception um, later on for self-defense against an armed attack and so co is talking about here the conditions that authorize self-defense. That's what he's talking about in, at this conference, um, which lets you know what's on the mind of the, the people asking these questions. You know, what's the legality of cyber attacks? What is our ability to retaliate with military force to them? It, essentially, like, is this war and can we respond to it like war? Exactly. Yeah. Can, can we shoot back? Yeah. So Co takes this approach. Um, he trots out at the beginning of these remarks he trots out this canard he really likes which is that listen all we're gonna do here is we're just gonna apply the old laws of war to the new cyber circumstances (laughs) and so i this is like an aside about being a lawyer lawyers always want to say shit like this in every context but especially in new (laughs) especially in new technological horizons listen we're just applying old principles to new circumstances. That's all we're doing. That's right. Now, it's important to note, though, that that's not an argument. It's just an applause line. That's right. It, yeah. doesn't, it doesn't fucking mean anything, right? An argument yeah. would be explaining, like, what's new about the circumstances and why it doesn't justify different principles than the ones you normally operate on and, and maybe perhaps responding to some of the obvious arguments that would arise from saying that, well, I don't know, maybe cyber secure, maybe cyber circumstances do raise certain issues, like talking about it. But right. all he says, he steamrolls, uh, and this is indicative of how he deals with this entire issue. All he does is just fucking steamroll and say, look, there's nothing new here. The, the, old, the old ways that we deal with things are, are going to be enough. So the the central conclusion that Co reaches in these remarks is that cyber activities do, in the right circumstances, constitute uses of force under the UN Charter. And the analysis is real simple. He says that 
You look at whether a cyber operation, a cyber attack, creates physical injury, property damage, uh, of the kind that you might find when you consider the, the use of force that's produced by like a kinetic weapon, like a missile or something. And what right. he specifically says is, cyber activities approximately result in death, injury, or significant destruction would likely be used as a use, uh, viewed as a use of force. Now, this is important because... Herrico's reaching, again, the uncontroversial conclusion that cyber attacks, which are not called out in any respect by the UN Charter, obviously, which was signed in 1945, uh, he's saying that they count as uses of force. Now, these are not, there's no explosions here. There's no missiles, there's no bullets, there's no boots on the ground or ships or any kind of shit like that. So, how do you get there? How do you say that the Charter reaches it? And what what he's essentially applying is what we might call in legal profession an effects test. You look at right. what the effect of the thing is, and if the effects look the same as your you know, old law principles, as the old things you would think about, like a missile or a bomb or something, then it's reasonable to put them in the same group. I, I, think, it's a good, I think it's a decent application of that, of that principle. Right. If it causes the but, same kind of effects as the enumerated uses of force, then it's tantamount to those uses of force. But, but there's a problem, right? Like, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is... I'm with you so far. Right. Yeah, yeah. What, what's the but, problem? going back to what we started with economic sanctions there's no military weapons Uh you know there's no missiles but but the effects they have an effect yeah the effects starvation devastation disease and uh the the big one death that that's 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 a big one um right and that's yeah, that seems to pass the effects test. Yeah, if you take uh, the test that he comes up with and you apply it to sanctions. Now, he's not doing that here, but if you if you do that on your own, you can see like, oh, well, shit. <laughs> Wait a second. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you just ran right into economic sanctions, our primary tool of motivation. Right. But that's not really consistent. The, the problem with this is that's not really consistent with the UN Charter. Right. Like the, the UN Charter has these two articles, Article 41 and 42, that you read together. One defines um, things that are are not uses of force for the purposes of self-defense and warfare and all that. And Article 42 says this is what what counts as force. Um, and Article 41 includes severance of economic relations and says that's not a use of force. Right. That would be a, but, that would be a problem for our argument. So what we want to do is right. take this, the remarks about uh, cyber attacks that Harold Coe's giving, use that principle and apply them to economic sanctions and say, wait, wait a second, shouldn't you guys? I mean, if this is right, then these sanctions thing to appear to be an act of war. And so what Michael's right. pointing out is that Article 41 would present perhaps uh, someone might argue that there's a problem here because cessation of economic relations. Uh, but. Article 42, describing when the Security Council can actually take further actions, what's use of force, it includes blockades because that has, you know, their boats. Yeah, Article Article 42 says, look, if those measures don't work, if the, the, you know, if the communications cessations, if the cessations of economic dealing or the, you know, attempts to negotiate, if that doesn't work, then you can go to Article 42, and Article 42 is like operations of land, sea, air forces. But yeah, it also mentions blockades. So the economic force is even being considered by the charter here. You know, so long as you park a ship. So out. long as you park right. a ship. That's out. the key. Right. That's the key. Right. Distinction. The distinction is the actual use of 
physical equipment. Well, I right? think I think that's what some people are going to want to argue, but I I think that it maybe doesn't get at the principle here that like you are kind of stepping it up from just like cessation of economic relations to literally nothing in or out. Yeah. And we're going to catch anybody yeah. who's trying to deal with you in any way and penalize them or prevent them. Well, that's 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 right. I mean, they're yeah. they're getting cute by shoehorning sanctions such as applied by uh, the U.S. regime as not right. uh, force because it is a cessation uh, of economic relations or a severance, right. a complete severance of economic relations. But we are actively, as discussed, using our sanctions regime to chase actors who would otherwise be within their rights to not cease economic relations right. within Iran or Cuba yes, exactly. around the block by imposing you know draconian economic harm on them for the mere act of engaging in lawful right. transactions with yeah. Iran in the form of or Cuba or other blockaded nations in the form of uh, secondary sanctions that essentially cut dry up their source of yeah dollars. we talk about this in episode seven real uh, in, in depth but the secondary sanctions just chase down anybody. Uh, and target anybody who's doing business with the targeted entity lawfully right and then we just yeah. we just expose them to financial execution because there is nothing you can do business wise in the world that doesn't somehow or other involve dollars and once it involves dollars we're gonna fuck you if you use them a way we don't want yeah and we're just we're trying to get as close as possible to an actual blockade without using any boats and ships and and, and planes Right. right, like using banks and and uh, you know OFAC, using the cyber uh, warfare equivalents right. uh, of boats. Now, I think I think Harold Co makes a lot of sense when he says that, like, look, the maybe in this case, the applying old law to new things maybe makes sense in that the charter doesn't anticipate the internet, and we're not going to fault it for that. But the idea. That something that didn't exist before could produce effects that are like something that did exist before, and we could consider that to be governed under the same principles. I think that maybe sounds sound. But then when you look here, the global financial system and our position and our dominant position in it, like the reserve currency over uh, a you know, over a global financial system where, you know, tons of countries have offshored their manufacturing to just a few regions. That particular system and our our hegemonic power within it is something that I was not considered by the charter, and which renders, I think, a, a, a right. reasonable consideration of economic sanctions that we employ with the secondary sanctions regimes we talked about as much more like a blockade. Well, fun fun fact. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Cubans, you know what they call the the Cuba program, right? Tell us. I can't pronounce it. Oh. El, el bloqueo. <laughs> el bloqueo. Yeah, for you gringos yes. out there, that means the blockade. <laughs> <laughs> Right, so so the point that we're making, the point that we're making is probably pretty obvious at this point. But that if you take Harold Coe's effects test move seriously, and I think that you should, there's no real distinction that's worth considering to insulate economic sanctions regimes 
from being treated as a use of force. They produce a lot of the same effects that you might find from launching a Tomahawk missile or something. It's not like an academic distinction either, right? Like when something qualifies as a use of force, then you're restricted under principles of international law. Right, right. This matters. This, it matters what you qualify something as. And, and Heracle points that out in that now that we've decided it's a use of force, now back to the cyber warfare position, now that you've decided it's a use of force, you have to subject that you know cyber attacks to various types of analysis under international law. There are restricted principles under international law. Right. Distinction, proportionality are, are the big ones. Can you distinguish between you know, civilians and, and uh, armed combatants, basically, and proportionality has to do with your ability to limit or, or eliminate uh, civilian casualties. So Coe's analysis of cyber attacks on these points is really interesting because after he finds that cyber attacks can be a use of force, uh, he then turns to analysis of our own cyber weapons and says, distinction for the intended... He says, for distinction... The intended effect of the attack has to be to harm a legitimate military target. Okay, for yeah. proportionality, he says you got to check all kinds of shit. The the effect right. of the cyber weapon on shared military and civilian infrastructure, like a dam or a power grid that might affect civilians. You got to check for potential deaths or injuries that might result from effects on critical infrastructure. So these are all these are things you have to test when you are going to deploy, for instance, a cyber weapon. Um, right. Potential effects on civilian objects that are not military objectives, like like private civilian computers that hold maybe no uh, military significance, but that might be networked right. to computers uh, that right. are military objectives. So there's all of these tests that he's saying that international law would require you to look to, to look at. And if it would have spillover effects, if it would be not properly tailored to uh, a military target, then this would be impermissible under international law. These would violate the principles it, of distinction and proportionality. It would make them uh, a war crime, right? Right. Like, right. He literally says, a he war says, crime. You have to check whether it is so inherently discriminate as to be forbidden per se. Okay, right. this is like this is wild analysis if you then just take it one step further and do what we've been encouraging you to do, which is contrast with economic sanctions. The kind of things he's talking about here aren't even fucking close to the level right. of devastation that gets leveled when you cut double digit percentage points off the GDP of a country. It's not right. even fucking close. So like you could launch a tomahawk and the nation would be far better off than if you had yeah. uh than if you had, you know, imposed coronavirus on it. <laughs> well, one one difference between um, sanctions and cyber warfare is that one is actually happening. <laughs> also, you know, like one, one we're actually fucking doing, uh, and one is just a bunch of lawyers like this dipshit jacking off at a conference about, uh, you know, theoretically what might happen if, if someday we did some of this. Right. right. Well, I mean, yeah. he's also he's also in, in part providing analysis of what what if it happened to us and how, right. how much we're allowed to, you know, get mad about it if these things aren't observed. Right. But at right. least notice that what he's really concerned about here is, you know, we have to be very careful about spillover effects here if we're going to analyze this. Now, contrast that 
with the modern economic sanctions regime, which doesn't give a fuck about spillover effects. It's nothing but spillover effects. Spillover effects are no, the that's point. That's the purpose. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. the point. Right. So when you look <laughs> like, at that massive weapon, as opposed to this piddling bullshit where you, like, screw with, you know, some municipality's power grid, get get the fuck out of here. It's not even <laughs> fucking close. <laughs> right. In every application of the effects test, uh, one would one would be forced to conclude if one were not a fucking monster right. uh, th- yes. that economic sanctions are far far worse than shutting down the Grand Coulee Dam for a couple of days. <laughs> they uh. easily beat a couple of destroyers <laughs> emptying their tomahawk load off the co- off the coast of a country. They easily beat. Them. Well, at least that'll be localized to a couple of bomb right? sites, right? Right, exactly. I was I was going to say you could drop a bomb on a school and it would still be like again, look at just in fucking New York, how many civilian deaths there have been, right? Like this is it's the havoc you can you can wreck when you start draining countries of resources and and like Tarek um, said it's not theoretical we're going to talk about what's happening yeah. in iran right now it's not theoretical this is actually happening and actually yeah. is causing deaths so yeah so the question that should come up then i mean from that quick analysis of, of his remarks is why are we treating cyber attacks differently from economic sanctions when neither one of these things is a kinetic attack that's contemplated by the u.n charter both impose the kind of infrastructure damage that Co is concerned about in his remarks, and both can result in civilian deaths. Like, why why would we see those things differently? There's 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 a good reason, though. I think. <laughs> well, go ahead, and say more. So there's, yeah, yeah. There's a so there's the thing you got to keep in mind here is like we're the you know the U.S. is the most powerful entity in the world, and it's discussing how law should apply to everyone. Um, you know, it's not surprising. Uh, if we come to conclusions that preserve our power and protect our positioning, right? The conclusions here benefit us going both directions. Yeah, anytime you hear a privileged person ministering about the rules that should apply to everybody, you should assume, right. you, you can <laughs> safely assume that there's right. going to be some very nice framing for them. Right, and cyber warfare, by contrast, right? I mean, right. even nations like a Cuba or an Iran uh, could potentially uh, uh, wield them effectively against us. So, right. ergo, those are probably not so good. Right, right? it's right. got you. Yeah. Got you have to find this if you are interested right. in the imperial power of the United States. You have to find that cyber warfare is an act of war because you have to deter it to the maximum level possible. Because right. Anybody can fucking do it. A small group with a, with enough talent recruited can fuck you. Relatively right. small resources. This is not something that we can possibly, you know, arrogate and collect as far as power to ourselves. You can't do it. Well, if this is not this is not theoretical either, because as we saw in 2016, the Russians tanked Hillary's campaign. <laughs> so cyber warfare is real and That's effective right. uh, and can cause lasting damage <laughs> to our. Uh, democratic uh, systems right. and processes. Right. Uh, <laughs> right, well, <laughs> so, sorry. You know, <laughs> thanks for but, you're, you're no, undermining yeah. the you're undermining the point we're making. <laughs> no, but <laughs> the fear, the fear is here, and it, and it, it's a background that that we're trying to foreground for you. Uh, that's driving some of this discussion, that cyber warfare is asymmetrical. Right, exactly. As opposed to sanctions, which are asymmetrical in a different way, in that, like, there's almost nobody else 
in the world who's right. in any position to impose <laughs> sanctions yeah. meaningfully but us. Right. So, of course, those shouldn't be acts of war. It's our, like our main – it's our go-to thing. Yeah, we can't, right? we can't have like, somebody calling that an act of war. That's not going to fly at all. We're using <laughs> that all the that. time. And, and so yeah. once you know this, like once you think about that, we could have started. I thought about uh, reorganizing the episode in this way. Once you start from this – once you have this information – you already know what Carol right. Coe is going to say. It's easy. Like, you could have wrote that paper your right, fucking self. Simple. Yeah. You're going to have 35 it's... years in international law experience. This is obvious. Unreal how much time and effort has been spent on, like, putting intellectual and academic gloss on, like, you know, what when we do it, it's okay. And when other people do it, it's war. Like, that's that's pretty much it, like, at its base. Yeah. And look, when military industrial types are talking to each other uh, and rather than like lawyers, <laughs> you know, uh, they don't really treat these as meaningfully distinct at all. Right. Like we uh, we had this Rand Court paper called The Power to Coerce, Countering Adversaries Without Going <laughs> to War. Lord. Power to Coerce. <laughs> <laughs> the Power to Coerce. It's great. I wonder, so, what, this, so Rand, I wonder what this paper is going to say. Yeah. Rand is this like old think tank from the 40s that's like designed to help the U.S. military with R&D. Um, that's where it gets the name Rand R&D. Um, I never knew that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> that's the little added value that A-Lab brings. <laughs> nice. And uh, now it's massive, right? It's international. It's interdisciplinary. They do like all sorts of shit other, other than this. But military stuff still like their core... Thing. Yeah, they do a lot of cool. And, this is an aside, but they do a lot of cool like game theory papers where they say like, yeah. "Listen, if you just assume away all the difficulties of human interaction, this stuff is easy." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've read there so many fucking papers of theirs that result to that. <laughs> Sorry, go on. So, no, that's all right. That sounds right. So, so this paper was about like tools and instruments that the U.S. could use to modify the behavior of like incalcitrant foreign governments, right, without using the military. And this is a quote. Um, Our interest is with coercive power that can, under the right circumstances, substitute for military force. Mm. Substitute for military force. Interesting admission there. (laughs) Guess what was number one on the list? What's that? Economic sanctions. Weird. (laughs) Very yeah. weird. Yeah, yeah. Who would have guessed? They they think it could be really effective. As a matter of fact, this gets all the things done that we wanted to get done, and we don't even have to bomb them. Yeah, and right there next to it is uh, cyber warfare, and and the entire paper is just echoing everything we said here about the effects of these um, collapsing the distinction between each other and between them and actual kinetic warfare. Right. So when you look at the military industrial complexes, top body, top analytical body, what they say is literally no difference between these two actions. Yeah. They're in the exact same category. We use them to manipulate people and we use them when what we don't want to use is, uh, the ugly military force things that people don't like. We use the cuddly options, which accomplish the exact same physical results and goals in the world. Uh, but we can we can describe them differently. All right, so within the context of this discussion about sanctions, it's important to remember that 
probably our most draconian program to, uh, active today. Uh, there's Cuba, there's Venezuela, but really Iran. Uh, we're struggling to figure out how to sanction them even more. Uh, they're also a, a massive hotspot uh, for the COVID-19 virus, right? Uh, I think as of today, uh, we're around 3,500 deaths that are known uh, to have been caused by, by COVID. Um, but of course, uh, in New York, we don't have enough uh, medical supplies to test everybody. Uh, you can imagine uh, the sort of testing uh, uh, desert uh, that exists uh, in Iran uh, due to the fact that they can't get basic medical supplies there. So the numbers could be you know, much, much higher, right? I, I was reading an article where um, the trench graves that they are digging in certain grave sites uh, are visible from space, right? I mean, they're they're doing mass graves that are dusted with lime. Uh, people can't mourn uh, uh, the, the, their families and the people that have died in traditional ways. Um, the burden of an already overburdened and uh, damaged infrastructure, I just it can't be uh, overstated in any way. Uh, and... Um, of course, or not even of course. I mean, I think it's even somewhat remarkable that even uh, your Joe Bidens now, as of a couple of days ago, yeah. uh, in addition to many uh, Democratic members of Congress and, and the Senate, and certainly some of the people I'm sure who are in the 98 uh, uh, that voted for this in the first place, are suggesting that maybe we ought to uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, ease up on the sanctions right now, given everything that's going yeah, like, on. I, I don't, on I don't world, want to right? fault those people for switching positions. Obviously, it's nice that they eventually changed the right position. But I do have to say, right. laws generally understood probably best as like a subset of moral philosophy. And it involves, you know, we make a lot of jokes about how uh, – People apply the law wrong, or the law, or sometimes laws can be, you know, various laws can be evil, or they can apply them in personal ways that are just in service to their own politics. But another side of the law, when we're not being like ultra cynical, is that a lot of like very intelligent minds have thought a lot about various problems of, you know, evidence and and proving a case and and, and criminal law or tort law or whatever, um, because they've had to deal with tons of different cases that come before them. And one of the things that they've developed, I think, a pretty good test about. Uh, is intent. It's something that you deal with in contract law, in tort law, in criminal law. Intent matters. Why did somebody do... Right, what were you thinking when you did a thing, and did you mean for that to happen? And one of the most common sense tests that's been arrived at that I, I think it's almost impossible to disagree with is that a person can generally be ascribed the intent of the natural and probable consequences of their actions. And so while I started this by saying I don't want to necessarily hold it against these people for switching back to the right position, I also do I, – I can't resist dinging them. What the fuck did you think was going to happen? Yeah. This is what was going to happen. This was always going to exactly. fucking happen. And this is – I'm sorry, but the natural and probable consequences of you authorizing sanctions is that any negative state that hit this – that hit this country was gonna—they were gonna be extremely vulnerable, and you were gonna condemn people to death by by your vote for these sanctions. So thanks for coming back to the right side, but you fucked up. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. The, the as we said in in episode seven, the immiseration is the point. And right, candidly, if immiserate if, if immiseration you were fine with it in twenty seventeen. 
the very conceptual notion that you would make a country so unsustainable such that people would literally take to the streets and rise up and throw the Ayatollah out on his ass or something. I mean, what's really different in the COVID-19 era? Uh, Good news. It's working even better now, uh, according to 2017, you. The most charitable reading is like a, a level of like hubris and arrogance that like doesn't even contemplate that there are forces greater than the u.s right that like we can turn it on and off as we as we like and we never have to worry about things getting worse than we want or better than we want you know and something like this coming along and people being like oh oh, shit well like that i didn't mean for mass graves we just meant for a lot of individual graves right right exactly (laughs) (laughs) oh this is this isn't what we intended That's I think that's the that's the most generous interpretation. So we've come around, you know, some some people have come around, right? The the Democrats, Mr. Biden, uh, et cetera, have come around and decided, you know what, uh, maybe maybe now we're getting too much immiseration. Uh, we had the right. right mix before, but, you know, in 2017. But now with the covid thing, maybe we should ease up. Uh, right. Good news. We're, we're not no. easing up. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> nope. Now, again, there are no more. I have to say, I, I've said this, I think, on the episode. I said this on Twitter multiple times. There's no more sanctions left to impose. No. Um, but we're still figuring out ways to impose more. Right. right. Um, and so I think they just uh, just last week or, or not too long ago announced like a whole new raft of IRGC related sanctions. Um and then, of course, uh, you know, in the middle of all this crisis, also uh, turned around and issued a warrant for the arrest of Nicolas Maduro. Amazing. Right? So <laughs> right. we're not easing up on sanctions. We're of shit. We're putting the gas <laughs> pedal down. We're making them, we're making them <laughs> even stupider than anybody insane. thought possible. Not only are we not easing up on sanctions, not only are we imposing even more sanctions, but um, more we're also coming out and trying... <laughs> Yeah, we're trying to block a requested loan from the this IMF. This is fucking to unreal. Iran. Iran has applied yeah. to the IMF for an emergency loan to help deal with its COVID nineteen response, and we are yeah. protesting it in the middle of this shit. Yeah. So people will tell you, the Trump administration will tell you, OFAC officials will tell you, uh, Democratic uh, sanctions experts and officials will tell you there are humanitarian exceptions to all of this uh, oh, right thank you can God. you know we're doing this in a, in a targeted way to only you know uh, target the bad actors and, and we have all of these these exceptions that permit uh, humanitarian aid to come through this is bullshit it's yeah. not true it's garbage they are a sham you know who's going to do this nobody's going to risk the wrath of the united states um and secondary sanctions or, or whatever, uh, you know, repercussions might come. Uh, one little misstep uh, navigating this ridiculous <laughs> network of sanctions that the, that the U.S. has created. There are humanitarian windows, it is true, scripted into the statutes. But you can also be, you know, subjected to economic death penalty if you utilize those exceptions and those exceptions uh, lead to you 
delivering medical or other humanitarian supplies to uh, sanctioned parties such as Quds Force or other people, right? right? So, sure, you can deliver all the malaria meds you want to fight COVID, uh, but God forbid, uh, you know, a Kuds Force guy gets some of it. Uh, you're going to be uh, thrown on the list of people that can't use American banks anymore. <laughs> right. You're done. If I remember correctly, uh, the OFAC penalty would be multiplied by the individual thing, right? So if you sent, a, like, they, they, could mu- they could multiply by doses of medicine or something, right? Yeah, it depends on what a transaction is. But, yes, it's a transaction model, a facilitation of transactions. So, um the fact is this stuff is so complicated to, to comply with. No, no company in their right mind, uh, absent additional measures, uh, is going to just take it on faith that the fact that there's a humanitarian intent to your shipment uh, is going to go Right. If you're it. not going to give somebody a safe harbor, they're not – look, I mean people want to help, but they're not – it's not a suicide pact. That's right. Early last month, OFAC put out some guidance and they said uh, – that transactions involving Iran's foreign exchange assets held abroad, when used to buy humanitarian items, these will not face U.S. sanctions. It was very generous, very nice of them. However, (laughs) 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 because there's no waivers that are available anymore for purchasing, you know, Iranian oil, uh, and and because there's such uh, heavy sanctions against Iran's central bank, they don't have any fucking money. They can't get access <laughs> <Right>. to currency <laughs> yes. to buy the medical supplies. So this, like, generous <laughs> offer that, listen, guys, just use all the money that you have and we'll let you buy stuff, they can't do it. Because they don't have any money. That's why they're seeking and, and the IMF the loan. So remember, they're seeking right, the IMF that's what loan. Say. That's, yes. But then yes, we're opposing that's that. That's what I was going to say. So it's a total bullshit sham offer from the Treasury Department. Yeah. So – that's the kind of doublespeak we yes. engage in. You can sell humanitarian items to Iran, but not to the wrong Iranians, and right. only if they have money, which they don't, because we've essentially dried up their enti- entire economy. Any mistake and we'll right. execute you. <laughs> and the, the cruelty, as is often said with the Trump administration, is not the byproduct, right? It is the point right but it's not just the trump administration this is all functioning as intended this was done under obama and his uh you know sec right hand man uh uh biden um obviously we did enter into an iranian deal that eased some of this but this is the way it is intended to work it is intended to be uh to give us cover to say that we're being nice guys and have all of these uh, 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 exceptions built in, but nobody can actually use it. The, the uh, Iranian the Iranian deal was was pitched as like a sanction success story. Like, look, you use really harsh sanctions as a stick, and then the promise of easing them to get them to the table and to agree, right? To to. To modifications of their behavior it worked beautifully this is like precisely how sanctions are supposed to to work right that's that's it the success story sanction success story iran <laughs> <laughs> it's really working out uh and <laughs> yeah. and you know it's this kind of double speak that's hilarious like we've also proposed a salute okay so we issued a, a warrant for maduro's arrest uh, in venezuela and then we proposed a solution 
which is if he steps down, uh, then we will, uh, of course, agree uh, to uh, relaxing some of the sanctions that we've imposed against his regime. So this is all just uh, 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 the thinnest possible fig leaf uh, for what is just wildly cruel, especially uh, during this global Right, it's nuts that we're ratcheting it up in the middle of this. It's it's like sociopathic. It's the American way. <laughs> God bless us. It's, so yeah, so this isn't really the end of the story, though. As 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 we talked about in um, episode seven, uh, all this sanction stuff is effective because of the centrality of the American financial system um, and this essential death threat that is uh, threatening to cut someone off uh, of access to that system um but there's this european special purpose vehicle called the instrument in support of trade exchanges or instex uh rolls off the tongue yes (laughs) (laughs) they're not as good at acronyms as as congress (laughs) i gotta say that's one thing congress does all right (laughs) And so that's from January 2019, and its mission is to facilitate non-U.S. dollar transactions with Iran to avoid breaking U.S. sanctions and, and non-SWIFT transactions, which I think we pre- touched briefly on it. But that's like a that's right ranking the way banks talk to each other sort of thing. And it's finally uh, somewhat operational, d- despite the U.S. being very upset about it and, and threatening, delivering threats about it. Um, and it was just used to to get needed medical gear to Iran um, from Europe uh, for, in in the midst of like Corona. Yeah, before now, but, before uh, now, it was just like a theoretical structure that people were right. were you know coming up with. Well, that were, would, it would avoid sanctions, but this situation has necessitated its you know actual instigation. It's actually being used. Right, and but this is like this is the point, though, right? Like. Why the fuck is Instex even necessary if the medical and humanitarian exceptions have any purpose <laughs> or meaning whatsoever? <laughs> and like, how can we beautiful. be ups- How could we be upset about people doing this? Like, this is accepted behavior. All these like, people that will just say again and again, "Listen, you know, there's a humanitarian exception. You guys, you guys are complaining about nothing." I think I feel like people were in our replies about this after our sanctions episodes. Like, yeah, you don't, there was there was Yeah, there you don't was. know what you're fucking talking about. Uh, you know, you can always get that stuff across the border because that stuff's all exempt. Well, interesting yeah. because then why are people bothering to come up with this shit? Right. Right. And well, Instex, Instex, you know, in, in fairness, I, I work with French people uh, and, you know, this is primarily a French, I think, and other nations, but French, French, France has been leading it. Um, I wouldn't put it past their sort of ironic sense of humor that they pushed a medical and humanitarian transaction through first just to show us what <laughs> assholes we are. But, but, but Instex is meant to facilitate otherwise lawful business that is only unlawful because of the dollar uh, right. being used in, in the transaction somewhere, which is right. virtually unavoidable, absent in Instex. Um, right. But that right. being said, the fact that this shipment of, you know, significant shipment of medical gear was held up until Instex was operational over the, you know, whining and threats of the State Department and other U.S. officials uh, right. is kind of, it's kind of, yes, it's proving our point. 
right. uh, and all those people who told me uh, on Twitter that there were humanitarian exceptions uh, can get fucked. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the real point of this podcast. Absolutely. We finally come to it. <laughs> it's the whole point of every I'm episode. I'm real sorry for the people of Iran, but first of all, our fucking haters need to line up. You want to talk about uh, immiseration? Take a look at my mentions. <laughs> uh, but so, like, if there's if there's a silver lining to to COVID, it's that um, it's almost like working in unison with things like Instex to reduce dollar hegemony, right? Like, like you're saying, Instex is necessary because, like, like look, the Indian rupee has no use in Iran, and Iranian dinar have no use in India. And so if somebody wants to conduct an otherwise legal transaction across those borders, they don't have a currency they can use to exchange their goods, and that's what the dollar is used for, typically. And that's why we have so much power. And Instex is sort of a way around that. But, like, COVID is basically, like we said up top, is a lot like, you know, being sanctioned. And that's not just in the U.S., that's everywhere else. And everywhere else is feeling this in part because of the dollar drying up as a, as a monetary instrument for them, right? The normal methods that the dollar is, like, flowing into their country so that they can buy shit they need that they don't manufacture or produce in-country. Yeah. Um, it's not coming in through tourism. It's not coming in uh, because we're not buying shit that they're exporting anymore. Um, we're That's talking right. about reshoring, manufacturing, you know, generally speaking, trades drying up, and the U.S. dollar is not, like, circulating. Yeah, the, do widely. the dollar functions as, like, lifeblood in a globalized economy. Um, but when it stops or when you have this kind of major global contraction, you know, you're going to see countries talking about reshoring their manufacturing and, and maybe maybe uh, not necessarily isolating, but like insulating uh, and becoming, you know, a little bit more independent. And that's a danger. That's a danger for the U.S. dollar hegemony. We sort of felt that sanctions overreach would be a motivating factor for people to wean themselves uh, off the dollar. Uh, but it turns out that the fact that uh, none of us can leave our homes uh, here, here in the U.S., let alone buy things uh, abroad, may in fact hasten that. I don't know that we're right that the rest of the world is going to eventually uh, wean itself off the dollar as the exchange currency. But... Um, it seems like the cracks are showing. This is, I mean, for for Instex to come online and actually start conducting transactions is not is not something that went unnoticed by the international financial community. People are watching. That's right. People are commenting on it. And while it seems you know harmless and experimental at this time, you know it is the sort of thing that could happen like a domino reaction. I kind of want to go back, you know, jumping off from this conversation about the global financial system. To Harold Coe's insistence that you can, you know, you can always apply old law to new situations. And earlier on, we were talking about how that's that's just a rhetorical move. It's not an argument. Well, if you take the globalized, our global financial dominance over a globalized economy, this is unprecedented and unanticipated by anything like the UN Charter or other international agreements and bodies of law that would mitigate, you know, country to country aggression. When you apply old law here and you, and you find economic sanctions the way that we practice them, the way we've just discussed their effects, uh, to be less than an act of war, less than a use of force, it's fucking irrational. 
As we pointed out earlier, the effects are far in excess of what you would find if you launched a volley of tomahawks. It would be better off for you to do that. These kind of sanctions, they easily pass uh, Harold Coe's effects test. And in many cases, they're well beyond the strength of those kinds of military attacks. And so this idea that you just apply old law to new situations, it kind of fucking falls apart here. Uh, or, or it doesn't. It, it might not because to the extent that most of old law is uh, I'm rich and powerful get fucked <laughs> right. uh, yes <laughs> yeah you know we might actually uh, be applying a sort of prima nocta uh, <laughs> right <laughs> So in a sense, yeah. maybe the most ancient of laws. Fuck you, I win. My mood is flexing. Your bitch is pressing. Your bitch is testing. You learn your lesson. I fuck up blessing. She get depressing. Get the fuck up on my way. Hoodies on the bed, don't do it. One of the old freeways. Get the hell up on my face. I just walked up on the girl. Looking at me, bitch, I'm in a bad mood. I just walked in the gym and took a mannequin Running through the mall from the cops like fuck them I just shoved a lady with the baby on the floor Ran into an old bitch and pushed her out the door My LSD is kicking and I think I see the Lord Devil on my shoulder, it's a double-edged sword Stumbled to my